Hi, and welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast. We have some exciting news we want to share with you, and that's that Rob's newest book, The Jordan River Rules, is finally here. It's been 20 years since The Red Sea Rules was published, and since then, it's helped hundreds of thousands of people through all kinds of crises. People write letters all the time to us about what they've been through. Now, he's written this book, The Jordan River Rules, to talk about how the swollen waters of the Jordan River were held back. This time, not to help the Israelites escape the enemy, but to open the path to the promised land, a path to victory. So maybe in your life, you're shifting gears. Maybe you're accelerating or slowing down. You wonder what's next. Our lives tend to move forward in different stages. So maybe you're figuring out post-pandemic life, or perhaps you've just graduated or had a baby or a change in career, or even you've lost a loved one. The message of the Jordan River Rules is that everything in your life so far has been God's preparation for stronger days ahead. Now it's time to move onward toward all the promises he has in store for you. You can search on Amazon for the Jordan River Rules to find the book and its accompanying study guide, which is meant for individual or group study. Or you can visit robertjmorgan.com. Use the code JRRPODCAST to save 10% off the book, the study guide, or the online study videos. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Well, good morning or good afternoon or good evening, wherever you are, welcome back to our series of podcast studies called Unstoppable. It's the story of the early church in the book of Acts. And today we're coming to the book of Acts and chapter 19. But before we begin, I want to say an excited word about a new book that I have coming out very soon. It's called Great Is Thy Faithfulness, 52 Reasons to Trust God When Hope Feels Lost. I have a copy in my hand right now, an advanced copy. And it's a very unusual looking book. The uh, artists at my publishing company, HarperCollins Christian Publishers, have made a colorful sort of um, abstract scene of mountains and the words, great is thy faithfulness spread over the cover in blue, very bold font. And the contents of this, uh, it's a lovely book with a ribbon in it. It's a devotional book, represent 52 different verses about the faithfulness of God and using insights, um, uh, scriptural teachings from past generations, illustrations and stories from my own life and from the life of others. I've put together uh, what I think is just a composite devotional picture of the faithfulness, the great faithfulness of God and what it means to us. And it's available now for pre-order from Amazon. And as you may know, if you're connected at all with publishing, having pre-orders on Amazon is a very important part of their algorithm and the way that a book does later. And so if you would like to pre-order this, go to Amazon. It is called Great is Thy Faithfulness by Robert J. Morgan. And I would love for you to, uh, to get this as a gift for yourself and maybe for somebody else. Well, we certainly see the faithfulness of God in the life of the early church as it is presented in the book of Acts and in its unstoppable gospel. And today we're coming to a very curious incident in the book of Acts that I want to uh, talk to you about in some detail. I've given a great deal of thought to this. And so if you have your Bibles, if you're where you can open your Bible, it may be helpful if you'll turn to chapter 19. And this is the story of Paul coming to the great city of Ephesus. This is on his um, uh, missionary journeys, uh, his third trip, actually. 
uh, in the book of Acts chapter 19, and I'm going to read these seven verses to you, and then we'll back up and, uh, uh, and analyze them. So chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, What then? What was the baptism that you received? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. I have been perplexed for many years about why there are four different Pentecosts or four different Pentecostal events in the book of Acts. I don't know if you have ever thought about that or not, but it's been perplexing to me since I was in college. I've read commentaries, I've listened to explanations, I've thought through possibilities, and really no one has given me a a satisfactory answer. So I have developed my own theory, and I'd like to see if you agree with it. I don't want to be very dogmatic about it, but this is the subject of today's study, which comes from this passage in the book of Acts. Now, in the last episode, we saw a new figure introduced into the accounts of the book of Acts. His name was Apollos. He was an academic man, a scholarly Jew from the Jewish community in Alexandria in Egypt. He had been set on fire by the ministry of John the Baptist, and he had become an evangelist proclaiming the Baptist's message of repentance. So as he went around as an evangelist for John the Baptist, he arrived in Ephesus at the end of chapter 18 of the book of Acts. We looked at this last week, preaching this message of repentance with great power. At that time, Paul had just left Ephesus. Apollos arrived just after Paul had departed. They missed each other, but Priscilla and Aquila were there. Apollos didn't know the full gospel. He was familiar with the electrifying message of John the Baptist, who had called people to repentance to hasten the coming day of the Messiah. But he had not heard the rest of the story. And as we saw last time, Aquila and Priscilla took him into their home, and over a humble kitchen table, they explained the way of God more perfectly to him. It was as if he had been doused with gasoline and he instantly became a powerful follower of Christ and a preacher of the gospel. And shortly afterwards, Apollos left Ephesus to travel to Corinth. And that was the end of the book of Acts chapter 18, as we saw last week. Now, Luke is going to continue this John the Baptist theme as we enter chapter 19. Here we have a very similar situation. While Apollos was traveling across the Aegean Sea from Ephesus to Corinth, Paul was traveling overland through Asia Minor, and he was entering the great city of Ephesus where he found some of these John the Baptist disciples. Perhaps they had been influenced by the ministry of Apollos before he had learned the full gospel who had just been there. I hope you'll be able to visit Ephesus one day. 
It's in the nation of Turkey. It's all in ruins, but the ruins are so preserved that you can easily visualize the city as it was in the days of Paul. Several years ago, my son-in-law, Joshua Rowe, and I visited the ruins of Ephesus, and I just cannot tell you how close I felt to the presence of Paul. These are fabulous ruins, fabulous. If you visit Ephesus, you can actually walk down the streets that Paul traversed, stand in the stadium where the riot occurred, which we read about in chapter 19, and you can walk around the remains of the houses where the early Christians would have been meeting. Christianity completely transformed that city. It really was the Apostle Paul's greatest success story, and we'll look at it in some detail, uh, particularly in next week's episode. But for today, let's pick up here again in verse 1. It says, While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior, and he arrived at Ephesus, where he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul sensed that there was something missing in their experience. And they answered, no, we didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit who had been given. And so Paul asked, what baptism did you receive? And they said, John's baptism. Well, you may remember in the last episode, I explained that the ministry of John the Baptist had been absolutely sensational. The Jews had not seen a fire and brimstone prophet for centuries. And suddenly, John showed up like Elijah in the wilderness, and his ministry sent ripples through Jewish communities, not only across Judea, but across the Roman Empire. On the other hand, the ministry of Jesus Christ was largely localized, much more modest, just simply being carried out along the rural towns and the villages of Galilee. At the time, it did not have the kind of widespread, immediate following or sensationalism that John's ministry did. So when Paul came to Ephesus and visited the Jewish community, he found a small John the Baptist group there. They had taken John's message seriously and had been baptized with the baptism of repentance. They longed to get their lives right before God, and they wanted to hasten the coming of the Messiah, but they didn't know that the Messiah had, in fact, come. So Paul explained, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And on hearing this, they received Christ and were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that was the beginning of the church in Ephesus. But the verse that I want to emphasize is what happened next in verse 6. Paul placed his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. It was a Pentecostal event, a miniature event, representing what had happened in Acts chapter 2. Now, to me, this is very interesting, and it's a bit of the mystery. As I said earlier, there are four Pentecostal moments in the book of Acts. Three of them involved Peter, and this last one, this one that we're reading about, involves Paul, which affirms that Paul had a Peter-like status as an apostle. Now, let me review these four Pentecostal events. The first was on the day of Pentecost itself in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit descended on the 120 Jewish believers in the upper room, and this launched the conception of the church. The second time something like this happened was in Acts chapter 8 
and it's called the Samaritan Pentecost. Acts chapter 8, verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers so that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So this was the Samaritan Pentecost. Now, the third similar experience occurred in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius in the city of Caesarea and with the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10 verse 44 says, while Peter was speaking these words in the house of Cornelius to the Gentiles that had gathered, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message and the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So this was the Gentile Pentecost. And now fourthly, finally, here in Acts 19, we have something similar. When Paul placed his hands on these Ephesians, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, what does this mean? I can understand really the sequence of the first three Pentecostal events. The Holy Spirit came on the Jews, and then on the Samaritans and on the Gentiles. And it seems like a logical domino effect. But what are we to make of the events in Acts 19 and Ephesus on these disciples of John? Well, that brings me to my theory. Here is the essence of my hypothesis. The first two Pentecostal events in Jerusalem and in Samaria represented the Israelite Pentecost representatives from all 12 of the tribes were swept into the church. And then the episode with Cornelius represented the Gentiles being swept into the church. And here at Ephesus, the final Pentecost represented the Jews or the Israelites and the Gentiles being joined together in glorious unity to form a cosmopolitan universal church, which is what the church in Ephesus came to be. So let me break that down some. Everyone in Ephesians 2 who was baptized in the Spirit was Jewish. This Pentecost occurred in Jerusalem, which was the capital of Judah. And the bulk of the people there, even those from around the world who had come for the festival of Pentecost, they were Jews. That is, they had descended from the tribe of Judah, which had been dispersed when Babylon destroyed the nation in 586 BC. This was the tribe from which the Messiah would come. Now, in a technical sense, not all of Israel were Jews. Jews were the children of Israel, or Jacob, who had descended from Jacob's son, Judah. The words Judah and Jew are connected words. So if you were a member, say, of the tribe of Manasseh, or the tribe of Dan, or the tribe of Ephraim, you were not technically a Jew. You were an Israelite. You were a son of Jacob, a son of Israel, but you were not from the tribe of Judah. You were from the tribe of Manasseh or Ephraim or Dan. 
and the day of Pentecost was a baptism of the Jews that was to people from the tribe of Judah. It was the Jewish baptism. But have you ever noticed how concerned Jesus was for Samaria? Several years ago, I was really struck by this, how burdened Jesus was for this little patch of land between Judah and Galilee, which was despised and avoided by most of the Jews of Judah. For example, in Acts 17, we're told that Jesus traveled along the border of Samaria and Galilee. And in John 4, he cut through the mountains right into the hearts, uh, right into the heartland of Samaria, and he evangelized that area. In Luke 9, he diverted into Samaria a final time as he was on his way to Jerusalem for crucifixion. He took time to go back into Samaria. And in Luke chapter 10, he told the story of the Good Samaritan, made the hero of the story of Samaritan. And Luke 17, the one thankful leper out of the 10 who were healed who came back to think Jesus was a Samaritan. And in his great commission, Jesus said, you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So why this burden for a small tract of land known as Samaria? Well, of course, Jesus had a burden for everyone, but there are, I think, two special things to keep in mind about Samaria. First, this was holy ground. When God gave the Holy Land to Israel at the conquest of Joshua, it included both the south, Judah, and the north, the tribes, the 10 tribes, centered in the headquartering capital city of Samaria. So all of the land from the Negev Desert in the south to the border of Lebanon in the north was holy land. This was divine geography, and Jesus was wanting to reclaim it. But second and more important, I believe that Jesus very well knew that the Samaritans had Israelite blood in them. They were the survivors of the so-called 10 lost tribes of Israel, which had been deported during the Assyrian invasion. I don't have time to summarize the history of the Old Testament and what happened in the nation of Israel, but suffice to say that the 12 tribes, the entire nation of Israel, split apart and were divided into two different nations, with the 10 tribes occupying the area of Samaria and the two, Benjamin and Judah, primarily Judah, in the south, headquartered in Jerusalem. These top 10 tribes, the northern 10 tribes, were destroyed and deported by the Assyrians in the middle of the Old Testament, but it's inconceivable that every single person in this entire area was shackled and led away. There were survivors, there were stragglers who remained in the land and who then intermarried with the new inhabitants that came into the area and the new uh, people who had been brought in by the Assyrians to populate the land of Samaria. Now, there are still some Samaritans in the Holy Land. I've been there, and I know exactly where they live. They are descendants of these people. There's probably less than about a 1,000 of them right now, but if you ask them, they trace their ancestry back to the lost, the so-called lost 10 tribes. Michael Heiser said in one of his lectures, the Samaritans themselves, if you were there today, uh, they are very small, very small in number, but they would claim that they are direct descendants from the northern Israel tribes who had survived the exiles. In other words, they weren't deported and they somehow escaped the act of the Assyrians in getting rid of them, end quote. 
And now I want to read you something from an unusual source, uh, the DNA testing website 23andMe. I'm quoting now. What does the genetic material reveal about the Samaritans' origins? Luckily, there have been many genetic studies of the Samaritans, both to uncover their origins and to understand how many of them survived so many generations of isolation. One such study argues that the traditional hypothesis that the Samaritans were transported into the Levant by the Assyrians and have no Jewish heritage is largely incorrect. Rather, the Samaritan, Samaritan lineages are remnants of those few Jews who did not go into exile when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 BC. Those who remained in the Levant may have also taken non-Jewish wives, which would account for the genetic admixture of the female side. But according to the authors of the Y chromosome, clearly shows that the Samaritans and the Jews share a common ancestry. In other words, the Samaritans have genetic materials in them from the lost ten tribes that correspond to the Jewish DNA that the Jews from Judea have. So all of these then would share a common ancestry. And let me read what Dr. Gary N. Knoppers said. He was a brilliant Old Testament scholar. He died, sadly, at the age of 62 from pancreatic cancer. But he wrote a book called Jews and Samaritans, The Origins and History of Their Early Relations, which was published in 2013 by Oxford Press, Oxford University Press. He said, I'm quoting, the common assumption of a comprehensive northern exile needs to be rethought. In other words, I'll break in here. The thought that every single Israelite was deported from this area of the Northern Kingdom needs to be rethought. He continued, to be sure, tens of thousands of Israelites were deported by the Assyrians to foreign territories and were forced to adjust to living in cultures considerably different from their own, but many others continued to reside in their ancestral homeland, albeit under foreign rule. And that's the end of his quote. But this would explain why Jesus was so preoccupied with the Samaritans. First, their geography belonged to God as part of his holy land. And second, these were his brothers. These were Hebrews. The Samaritans were Hebrews, remnants of the so-called lost 10 tribes. They were non-Jewish Israelites. And that is, they were children of Israel from tribes other than Judah. So the Pentecostal event in Jerusalem brought the southern Hebrew bloodline into the church, and the Samaritan Pentecostal event brought the northern Hebrew bloodline into the church. It represented two sides of the same event. Now let's go on to Acts chapter 10. The Pentecostal event there clearly involved the family of Cornelius. It was certainly the Gentile Pentecost it merged the Gentiles into the church along with the two sides of the Israelite Pentecost. And so now we have one church, but it has in it two different segments. The Hebrew segment made up of both the Jews and the non-Jewish Israelites, the Jews and the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. But now the whole concept of the church at Ephesus involves the merging together and the amalgamating of these two different groups so they are no longer two but one. 
At Ephesus, the Holy Spirit descended to mark the birth of the great cosmopolitan church, which would signal the unified church belonging to both Jews and Gentiles. Now, I say that partly because of material that is outside of the book of Acts, material that we have in the book of Ephesians. So let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. And notice how Paul later described this remarkable church. It is described in language that is unlike that of any other church in the New Testament. So look at Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 11. Paul said, Remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. He has taken the Israelites and the Gentiles, and in Christ he has made peace between them and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Let me read that again. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, both the Israeli Christians and the Gentile Christians, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put together, he put to death their hostility. Now notice this in verse number 17. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, referring to the Gentiles, and peace to those of you who were near, referring to the Israelites, for through him we both have access to the Father, how? By one Spirit, by one Spirit of Pentecost, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit descended onto the tabernacle. And in the uh, book of Second Chronicles, the Holy Spirit descended down to live in his temple. But with these Pentecostal events, the Holy Spirit descended down in the same way to leave, to live within his temple, which is the church, his people, which is made up of Israelites who come to Christ and Gentiles who come to Christ and are baptized together to become one church. And I think maybe that is the significance of the fourth Pentecost. The first Pentecost was for the Jews. In Jerusalem. The second was for the Samaritans, the remaining Israelites from the lost ten tribes. 
Then the third reached out to the Gentiles, and the fourth was for the cosmopolitan church, composed of both Jews and Gentiles and the full unity of Christ in Ephesus, as we have explained to us in the epistle to the Ephesians. Now, there's one more thing to notice. The ministry of Paul in Ephesus was very reminiscent of what Jesus did at the beginning of his ministry. Paul's ministry in Ephesus was almost a miniature reenactment of the ministry Christ had in Israel. It began with the ministry of John the Baptist. It started with 12 men. It lasted three years. We know that from Acts 20, verse 31. It involved the proclamation of the gospel punctuated with miracles and with the overcoming of demonic forces. And at the end of the three years, the great preacher left his flock, but the church continued to grow and to reach out to the regions beyond. If I were to ask you to describe this for me, what ministry began with John the Baptist, started with 12 men, lasted three years, involved the proclamation of the gospel, there were miracles done, and the overcoming of demonic forces, and at the end of three years, the great instigator left, but the church continued to grow. You would say, well, that's the ministry of Christ. But you could equally say that was the ministry of Paul in the book in the city of Ephesus. So this is the unfolding of the birth of the church as it's rolled out in the book of Acts. And it's now my belief, at least, that the moment we come to Christ, we have a part in it as well. We are instantly shareholders and partakers of Pentecost, of this baptism. I don't have time now to go into all of the implications of that, but if this theory is true, then Pentecost being a Pentecostal Christian, having the part that we have in Pentecost is the true biblical answer to racism. We are all baptized together in one family. It is the true biblical answer to powerlessness because we've all been baptized into the unstoppable church. And it is the true biblical answer for the future. For we ourselves have the Holy Spirit within us as a deposit guaranteeing the things that are to come. And so it's our duty to be filled with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to be walk, to walk in the Spirit, and to let the Holy Spirit do His work in us and through us. You and I, when we are in Christ, are participants in the most dramatic spiritual event that has ever come upon the world, the fourfold miracle of Pentecost. We, ladies and gentlemen, are truly Pentecostal Christians. Well, we'll pick it up at this point next week as we continue to look at Paul's message and his ministry in Ephesus, and we'll continue our study of Acts chapter 19. I hope that you'll tell other people about this podcast. In the meantime, remember this book, Great is Thy Faithfulness, available now for pre-order. And for all of the other resources we have, visit my website at robertjmorgan.com. This podcast is produced by Clearly Media. Narrator is Joshua Rowe and music provided by Elijah Rowe. Thank you for joining and may the Lord be with you until we meet again.